Oh, you can be thankful this morning, can't you? The Spirit, the Spirit of God wants Christ to be lifted up, shown to be beautiful and glorious and wonderful. But, you know, we can sing that song and, I, and the Lord knew what we needed to sing. The Spirit of God led these songs to be chosen today. Because He wants you to know why He's beautiful and wonderful and glorious. We can sing those songs and the emotions can well up. Because it's like, yeah, we, we know it's true and we know it's right to say these things about God. But do you know why He's wonderful? Why He's beautiful and why He's glorious? See, without that, they're empty words. They're right. But you need to know why you're saying this about the Lord. And that's what I want to show you today. That's why I'm so thankful for how the Lord led this song to be chosen right before I preach. Because that's what we're looking at today. Turn with me, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Welcome to those of you who are visiting with us today. We're so glad you are here because we get to proclaim a glorious, wonderful, beautiful Christ to you today that I hope will transfix you. It will draw you to Him in a way like never before. And we need this, don't we, Christians? We need to be drawn to Him again and again. We cannot see Him enough. Seven days go by and you've forgotten how glorious He is. And we need to draw together again so that we can hear Him proclaimed, the one we need. The world is telling you all kinds of things you need, especially this time of year. I'm telling you what you need. I'm telling you the only one you need is Christ. So we're going to lift Him up this morning. Read with me. We're covering three chapters in 2 Corinthians. But I want to focus in on this text here, right here, just to introduce. Read with me chapter 4. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Pray with me. We come this morning hungry, needy, thirsty for Christ. Show us Christ today from the Scriptures, Lord. Satisfy us with Him. In Jesus' name, Amen. Do you remember how you viewed Christ before He saved you? There was nothing in Jesus that you would call beautiful or wonderful or glorious. See, in your eyes, the object most beautiful, the object most glory, you know where it was found? In the mirror. Everything that you did was for your own glory. 
for your own satisfaction, for your own pleasure, for your own renown. The self-help mantra for the last couple of generations has, it has been to love yourself. Love yourself. The greatest love of all is learning to love yourself. See, the sad truth is that we already love ourselves and we love ourselves far, far more than we should. And perhaps this is why one of the first requirements that, that Jesus gave for anyone who would follow Him, He says, let Him deny Himself. Remember who is saying this to us. He who did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself of Of what? Of freely expressing His glory as God when He became a man. He says to us, who already love ourselves too much, He says, following Me begins with denying the one you've loved more than anything or anyone, even more than God, yourself. That's where it begins. If you follow Me, you begin by denying yourself. Now, the Bible explains this inability to see the beauty and the glory of God. It defines it as blindness. But it's not our eyes that are blind. It was our minds. See, however Christ, prior to being saved, however He was presented to you, you saw no glory in Him. And the passage that we read that we just read, it says that this blindness, it was facilitated by the devil. Verse 4, the God of this world blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of what? Of the glory of Christ. So by the grace and the power of God, this is what you were made to see. You began to see Christ differently. Paul describes it In verse 6, he says, For God who said light shall shine out of darkness, this same God, this one, He's shown in our hearts. And to pay pay attention to this part, He's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Christ. See, God showed you the glory of Christ as God, as Savior. Now, we just finished working our way through Colossians chapter 1. And we were reminded there of the glorious supremacy of Christ as God, His sufficiency to save and to sanctify you forever. And understanding the supremacy of Christ, this is the key to every Christian's growth in Christ. And one of the significant ways that we grow is to see that in Christ... We have an all-sufficient Savior. As we saw from chapter 1 in Colossians, verse 28. You don't need to turn there. We saw Christ is sufficient to complete us. It says we proclaim Him so that we may present every man complete in Christ. It's through proclaiming Christ that you are made complete in Christ. Christ is He's able to complete every one of us in all the ways that we are incomplete. We may or may not have realized this when we first trusted Him, but this is what the Spirit reveals 
about Christ because this is how His glorious power is displayed in us. Whatever emotional, whatever spiritual needs we have in Christ, the believer has a limitless source and supply. There is a fullness in Christ more vast than the ocean to meet the needs of the soul. No doctor, no psychiatrist, no guru, no meditation, no medication or drug can come close to what only the gloriously supreme and sufficient Christ can do. Christ is more than able. And that's the title of this sermon. Christ is more than able. Now, while last week was the final sermon from Colossians chapter 1, just consider this sermon an addendum to the series. And my goal is to show you from 2 Corinthians, some, from the few chapters here in 2 Corinthians, that, that this, it's, it's to show you that Christ's glorious supremacy and sufficiency, right, that's Colossians chapter 1, it means He's more than able to deliver, to transform, and to sustain the one who trusts in Him. He is more than able to deliver transform and sustain the one who trusts in him. So I've organized my sermon differently, but much of what I'm showing you actually comes from a book my former pastor Steve Fernandez wrote. It's called The All-Sufficient Savior. It's also called the In- Christ's Infinite Fullness. It's back there in the in the alcove back there on the shelf if you're interested, you can read more. It was just too Christ-exalting and too edifying not to preach it in addition to all that we learned about Christ from Colossians. So I have three statements about Christ's sufficiency as Savior that I hope will strengthen your trust in Christ. And He will cause you to look to Him even more confidently as your all-sufficient Savior. Christ is able to deliver anyone. Christ is able to transform everyone. And Christ is able to sustain you. The first way that we see the glory of Christ is in His power to deliver anyone. Christ is able to deliver anyone. So let's turn to a passage and let's witness the power of Christ to deliver a sinner. Turn with me to Mark chapter 5. This is just setting the stage. We can see here Christ's power to deliver a sinner from what is perhaps the most miserable existence imaginable. Read with me, beginning in chapter 5, Mark chapter 5. They came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him, and he had his dwelling among the tombs. No one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gnashing himself with stones. So for a Jew, these men pulling up on the boat with Jesus are his disciples. They are all Jews. The worst thing that could happen was to be declared unclean in the presence of God. There are numerous laws that God gave to Israel to keep them a holy nation, to be set apart. That's what these laws were all about, 
to set them apart from the nations. If you touch the dead body or anything's related to the dead, you would become ceremonially unclean. You would have to go through seven days of purification to rid yourself of that uncleanness. And so Mark here is describing this man who approaches Jesus as having an unclean spirit. But it wasn't just one spirit. It was a whole legion, we're told, of spirits, possibly. Uh, So in addition, he lived among the tombs, the worst possible of circumstances of uncleanness. He, He lived among Gentile surroundings, which were deemed unclean. And, and he was in a land that was surrounded by people who were raising pigs, who were unclean animals. So Mark here, he's emphasizing how spiritually desperate this man's condition was from the, from the perspective of a Jew. So perhaps the only person in Scripture who might rival this man in terms of misery would be Job. But as much as Job suffered, you have to wonder if he approached the misery of this man who was tormented every moment by the very powers of hell. Mark says he was living among the tombs. No one could bind him, not even with chains. They had tried. They had put him in chains. They put him in shackles. And he had literally pulled them apart with apparent supernatural strength. He broke them into pieces, it says. Mark says no one was strong enough to subdue him. And this word subdue, it's the word for taming wild and ferocious animals. You know, we all have our little proclivities and things we like to watch. Lately, my wife has gotten into watching these little videos of ferocious animals. And you just see, you can tell strength that is just beyond you when you see with what ease they can you know, just swipe across someone and they just are destroyed by that swipe or how fast they can run or how quick they can pounce or how they can lock their jaws onto something and not let go. So it's just, it's captivating. And you're seeing raw strength. And, and this word subdue, he's basically saying, when you look at videos like that and you think, I, go, to, go try to subdue that animal by your hands. You know, no gun, no taser, no, no, just go try to subdue them. He says, that's what this man was like. You couldn't subdue him. No handcuffs were strong enough or chains tight enough to keep him under control. So Mark describes the unrelenting torture that this man was going through at the hands of these demons. He would scream. He would yell. Night and day, he he would be in these tombs. He'd be picking up stones and he'd be cutting himself. It only added to his misery, both emotional and physical misery. He's crying out. He's screaming. He's cutting himself. And so Mark describes the scene then after Jesus got out of the boat in verse 6. He says, seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and he bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, what business do we have with each other? Jesus, son of the most high God, I implore you by God, do not torment me. So Jesus and the disciples are looking at a man who's barely a man at this point, whose life was a living hell. Jesus needed no ceremony. He needed no ritual. He simply was standing there before the man who's possessed by a legion of demons. He has no army with him. He has no weapons in his hand. And he's standing before this legion of demons. And he simply speaks... One command. Come out of that man, you unclean spirit. 
We see some interaction between the demons and Jesus. He eventually permits them to enter a nearby herd of about 2,000 swine who then just rush down into the sea and drown them. But turn your attention now back to this poor man. So when the people of the city heard this, they went out to Jesus. He says, Mark says in verse 15, he says, they came to Jesus and they observed the man who had been demon-possessed. Remember all that they said about him. They now see this man sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. The very man who had the legion, it says, and they became frightened. Because, see, they knew this man. They knew the fearful nuisance that he had been to them. And now he's sitting there completely restored and sane. The word, the word for right mind, it speaks of self-control. This man had been out of control, and now he was back in control. He was in control of himself. The degree of his deliverance is emphasized even more in that these people, these people who once feared this demon-possessed man, now they're in dread of the one who cast out these demons. He has complete power over these spiritual beings. So the scene, it reflects the glory of Christ's delivering and transforming power. And and notice the response of this man to Jesus. He was fully aware of what he had been, how, how completely Jesus had delivered him. That when, when Jesus is stepping out back into the boat, because I said, Jesus, leave, leave, leave here. He's getting back into the boat to leave because the, the crowds want him to leave. And, and he's imploring him. He's begging him. Let me come with you. See, if Christ can deliver this wretched man whose condition was far worse than anything you or I could ever imagine, there is no one he can't deliver. Christ is able to deliver anyone. This is Paul's focus in 2 Corinthians. Turn back there. 2 Corinthians. He wants you to see that Christ can deliver anyone. No bondage is too great for Christ. He can set the sinner free. He can transform and renew any heart to walk faithfully as one of God's people. So Christ's power to deliver anyone from their sin is actually the glory of that the Old Testament anticipates in the New Covenant. In other words, the glory of the New Covenant and the power of Christ to deliver anyone from bondage to sin are one and the same. And I'll show you this. This is what Paul shows us. So let's see, first of all, this is the first thing we're looking at. Christ's glory is described in the New Covenant. Christ's glory is described in the New Covenant. So the New Covenant was a theme of Old Testament prophecy. We see it in Jeremiah 31. You're welcome to turn there if you'd like. I'll read it to you, though. Jeremiah 31, verse 31 says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. So this is looking ahead. He's telling us what's to come. And this is our time in which we're living now. He says, Days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So that implies there was an old covenant. I'm going to make a new covenant. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. 
And on their heart, I will write it. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. He says this in Ezekiel 36. I think this is worth looking at. Just have your eyes on this because it really ties in. Turn to Ezekiel 36. As he describes more what he's saying is going to come in the new covenant. 36, Ezekiel 36. Look down at verse 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Okay, so notice notice that the primary element of the new covenant, it has to do with the transformation of the heart. I will give you a new heart. I will remove the heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. That is heart renewal. That is heart transformation. And that is God telling how He will make a new covenant with His people that will accomplish, accomplish what the previous, the old covenant, was unable to. To do. See, the old covenant was governed by a law. A law that was prescribed, that simply prescribed correct behavior, but gave no power to carry it out. And so his people continually broke this law. Now, there was a purpose for that. We won't get into all that. It was to show you a need of a Savior. God was unfolding the need for, the, for why we need a Savior. You can't keep his law. You have no power. He says, but I'm going to make a new covenant with you. I'm going to take these same laws and I'm not going to write them on tablets of stone. I'm going to write them on your heart and I'm going to give you the power to walk in them. That's the new covenant, right? He's going to deliver his people from bondage, from their miseries, the miseries of sin that came as a result of the fall. And then instead of it being written on stone, I'm writing it on your heart and you're going to be able to obey. And I'm going to give you my spirit for all the power you need to walk with me. So Paul's emphasis in 2 Corinthians is that this heart transformation, which was anticipated in this new covenant, that heart transformation, the power that it takes for a heart to be made to be able to walk with God, that is associated and accomplished by the grace and power of Christ. The Holy Spirit. Yes, He is directly involved. But what Paul is showing us is that the Spirit is the agent through which Christ accomplishes His purpose in the believer. So even though Ezekiel, he, he rightly, he emphasized the Spirit, because that's a, that's a whole dynamic of this new covenant, is the Spirit is given to us. So he emphasizes that, but Paul's repeated references to Christ in 2 Corinthians, it shows that Paul is saying, this is Christ who is doing the work. He's doing it through the Spirit, but it's Christ's Work. So, uh, he says in verse 14 of chapter 2, I think? Yes, 2. We'll start in 2. Second Corinthians chapter 2. He says down there in verse 14, he, he speaks, look at what he speaks of. The sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him, he says, of Christ. He calls, he, he speaks of Christians in verse 15 as being the fragrance of of Christ. He says, 
we are an aroma from life to life. Verse 16. That is, Christ gives new life to the sinner through His Spirit. And that life, Paul says, in, if you jump over to chapter 3, verse 17, that life is characterized by liberty. He says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And he's talking about freedom from sin. He refers to the change of heart that is part of the new covenant that was to be coming. We were anticipating this. And, he re, and he's referring to Christians. He says in chapter 3, verse 3, he calls them a letter of Christ written on tablets of the human heart. That's the new covenant. And he says, what's written on your heart was written by Christ. He wrote that there. It's a letter of Christ and of his power to deliver. So over and over, Paul mentions the glory that is associated with the new covenant. So in verse 6 of chapter 3, he says that, that Christians are servants of a new covenant. So, so that's what's in the context. That's what we're talking about. The new covenant that Ezekiel told us about. He says this new covenant that we're servants of is associated with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then in verses 7 through 18, Paul shows how the glory of the new covenant, it exceeds that of the old. He says in verse 8, he says the ministry of the Spirit will certainly be even more with glory. In verse 9, it will abound in glory. And then in verse 10, the new covenant will have a glory that surpasses the old. See, so Paul, Paul here, he wants us to understand that the new covenant, whose glory surpasses that of the old covenant, it's actually the glory of Christ in the delivering and transforming of the heart. In verse 13, Paul says that there is a glory. There is a glory in the, in the Old Covenant, but it was a fading glory. He compares it to the fading glory. If you recall, when, when Moses would speak with the Lord face to face, he would return to the people and he would be glowing. And, and he... And so Moses would put a veil over his face. Why? Because that glory would fade. He, didn't, he says that the Jews, he didn't want them to see that that glory was fading. And then he goes on to say that, that, that the Jews, they still think there's a glory in the Old Covenant whenever it's read. Which is, he says, the only reason they think that is because their hearts are still veiled. But that veil is removed. He says it's removed whenever a person turns to Christ. When they look upon the greater and unfading glory that is Christ. The new covenant. Right? So, so when you see, the Jews are stuck thinking the old covenant has glory. He says, but when you see Christ, you see the unfading glory. You see the true glory. And that's what happens when a person is converted to Christ. The veil is lifted. It's removed. And he says in verse 18, he says, but we all, now he's speaking to us as Christians, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. So Paul here, he's directly asserting that this glory of the new covenant, it's the glory of Christ. That's the glory of the new covenant. And he says in verse 4 of chapter 4, he says that believing the gospel, it, look at what it involves. Verse 4, chapter 4, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's what you see. You hear the gospel about Christ and be, you, you are caused to see him as glorious. So the glory of the new covenant that surpasses the old is, 
actually Christ's glory that is on display. It's manifested. How? In the renewing of the heart in salvation. So he shows the glory of his mercy. He shows the glory of his power. As he does what? As he changes. As he renews the heart of the unbeliever. As he delivers them from whatever sin enslaved them. Uh, enslaved them and, and held them in bondage to be able to walk now in newness of life. And this new life is characterized by freedom from sin. See, he can change any heart. He can deliver from any bondage because of the surpassing greatness of his power and his grace. And, and the glory of Christ that Paul is speaking of, it's the same glory described in the new Covenant, right? This heart of flesh that you now have. You don't have a heart of stone anymore. The laws of God are written on your, house, on your very heart itself and you have the Spirit of God. You can carry them out. That's the glory of what Christ does. So Paul goes on then. He, he shows that the glory of Christ described by the new covenant, it's a central element to genuine conversion. All whom Christ delivers... They see and behold Christ as glorious. The second point is that Christ's glory is beheld in every conversion. Christ's glory is beheld in every conversion. And he shows this in chapter 4, mainly the verses that we read at the very outset here. So look down to verse 3. He says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Paul is using the metaphor of seeing, of sight, to describe conversion. You've got to see something if you're going to be saved. So saving faith which we know is belief in the gospel, trust in Christ, it involves the glory of Christ. You've got to see that Christ is glorious. This glory, this glory that is in Christ is what the devil has blinded minds, people's minds from seeing and understanding. And this word see here in verse 4, it refers to radiant light, to brightness, uh, the King James does a good job. It puts it this way. He sa it says, The devil blind blinds the minds of unbelievers, quote, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Acts chapter 20, verse 11, translates the noun form of this word as daybreak. So you get, you get the idea here? He's using this word that describes something bright, that, that shines forth to illustrate what actually happens in conversion? At the heart of the gospel that is shared, you can't be saved apart from the gospel. At the heart of the gospel that is shared is a glorious Christ whose glory shines forth like the sun in its brightness. You come to realize there's no one like him. Conversion is seeing who he is. It, it's realizing you must bow to him. You must follow Him. You must obey Him because of who He is. He's worthy of your trust. He's worthy of your worship. See, and this is what the devil seeks to blind people to. He blinds their minds. He wants to prevent them from seeing Christ as the one who can deliver them from any bondage. 
He works to demean Christ, to deny the glory of Christ. And he does this even after he converts you. Satan continues to detract and deface Christ's glory. He'll do everything in his power to diminish your conception of the sufficiency and the infinite fullness of Christ. Why would he do this? You're already on the, on the winning team. Why would, Christ, why would he seek to diminish Christ in your eyes? So that when you have needs, and when your soul is troubled, when you are suffering, you're not going to look to him as the one who's able to help you, as the one who can deliver you. So by convincing God's people that Christ is not enough, well, Christ is robbed. He's robbed of the praise that he rightly deserves as the sufficient Savior for you, both to bring you to Christ and to uphold and strengthen and sustain you in Christ. You know, there's many ways that the devil seeks to do this. We could go on and on. We could have a whole sermon about all the ways that, that Christ's glory is being demeaned to, by the church. The church is doing this. right? One of the ways today that is, is when the church makes Christ little more than a glorified life coach. Home Depot used to have the slogan, you can do it, we can help. A lot of what you hear today in popular evangelicalism, it sounds like these words. We present Jesus as the one who can fill, fulfill your... He can help you fulfill your potential. You can reach your dreams. You can live the life that you've always wanted thanks to Jesus. We talk about him as if he's standing on the sidelines of our life and he's on the side going, you can do it and I can help you. You can do it. You can do it. Right? You want, a, you want a healthy relationship? I can help you. You want a fit body? I can help you. You want a fat bank account? I can help you. You want to feel successful? I can help you. See, we sanctify our fleshly desires by saying that Jesus is helping us to do it. And we back it up with that Famous verse, Philippians 4.13. Beautiful verse, but we use it in this way. We say, I can do all things through Christ who's on the sideline and is helping me to accomplish everything I need to do. Right? I want what I want. I've got the power to achieve my dreams. I just need a little help. And Jesus is the life, co life coach who's, who's helping me reach my goals. All glory to Jesus, who helps me reach my goals. See, when you see Jesus this way, and when the church preaches Jesus this way, the devil wins. The devil wins. If Jesus doesn't come through for you, if you don't get those things that you want, guess what you think? You tried Jesus, but he failed you. If you, if you gain these worldly treasures, see, it's a, it's a lose-lose situation. You don't get these things, you blame Jesus. If you do get these worldly treasures, then you pay lip service to Jesus, but you know, oh, it was, it was really my hard work. It was my ingenuity. It was my wisdom. Either way, Jesus is robbed of his glory. And when hard times come, this is where you fall flat on your face. One of those falls where your nose just gets scrubbed on the ground. Guess who you're not going to look to? You're not going to look to Christ for the help you need. You'll think God helps those who help themselves. Because that's what you were living by. And then when that doesn't work, oh, I turn to Jesus. He didn't help me. I guess I need to turn to real professionals to help me. I need to turn to doctors. I need to turn to psychologists. Why? 
because you're convinced that Jesus is not enough. He's not enough for the real problems of your life. See, Paul uses another term in this passage to describe what is beheld of Christ in conversion. Look at verse 6 of chapter 4. For God, who said light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And this word shown, when used as a noun, it refers to something that shines brilliantly. It's something that is magnificent. It's the word that's used to describe Christ in the transfiguration. And his face shone like the sun. It was, there was such brilliance you couldn't even look at him. And again, Paul, he's using a metaphor. A metaphor of sight in connection with the experience of conversion. You come to see Christ, in Christ one who is glorious like no other. We're not actually talking like, like there's a radiance, like... You see a bright light and you're like, oh, it must be Jesus. You're like, you haven't come to Jesus if you haven't seen some bright light. No, that's not what Paul is referring to. He's talking about a realization. A realization of how unmatched Jesus is and who he is, what he's done, and what he's able to do. That's what you see. That's why he's glorious. And that's why you come to him. And that's why you bow down to him. You come to the realization there is no one as glorious as him and your life is forever changed. That's conversion. That's conversion. It's not, dear Jesus, I'm a sinner. I know you have a wonderful plan for my life. Please forgive me and save me. That's nothing. I'm not saying you can't be saved by praying a prayer like that. But do you see, this is from Scripture. Paul is telling us what you need to see about Christ. Because that's the only way you'll trust Him. You trust Him with your soul, but not with your daily problems? That doesn't make sense. The Apostle John uses similar language. He describes the experience of conversion in the same way Paul does. Uh, Let me just quote it to you. This is Jesus speaking in John chapter 6. He says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. You see how beholding and believing, they go hand in hand. He's putting the two together. This word behold, when it's used as a noun, it describes someone who looks at something with interest. He inspects for a purpose. It's like a general carefully reviewing an army, paying attention to the details. There's a related word that speaks of gazing with wonder. So a Christian is someone who has beheld the Son of God, but, but not with a casual consideration. Yeah, He could help me. Not just with a theoretical knowledge. I, I believe Jesus is God. No, He's caught up. He's captivated by what He sees in Christ. Most of us are old enough to remember September 11th, 2001. I remember... <clears throat> I remember... I drove into work that day. I worked. I lived in Vallejo, and I drove to Burlingame. I, and I was listening to music. I wasn't even listening to the radio, so I didn't hear anything. Walked into the office, and back in, you know, that's the time before you, you, where you could still pick up television over the radio, uh, airwaves, right? And one guy in our office had a tiny little TV that you could dial in and bring in. And when I walked in, they were all huddled around the television. I was like, what's going on? Walked over there, and you're seeing the, the, the towers on fire, 
and smoke billowing out. What happened? And you're watching all this in such a way. You've, you know, many of you have seen, if you didn't see it live, you, you've seen the videos since then. And you can't just go, oh, yeah, that's, that's what happened in New York. That was, that was crazy. No, you're like, you're captivated. You can't look away. We couldn't look away. The whole morning, we didn't work. We were watching the whole thing. We were watching the replays over and over. And you're, and you're just you're stunned to the point of disbelief. You're like, is this real? Did this really happen? Those are the words that, John, that Jesus said about him. You're stunned. You can't believe that there is someone like this who would save you? That he could deliver you? See, that's what, the, that's what the Bible is trying to show you about Jesus. He's not an ideal. He's not good for your life. He's not a, he's not a life coach. He is God and He has come to save and deliver you and he can, he can do it. So trust Him. Trust Him with your life. Follow Him. This life, it's, it's, a, it's a blink. And if you don't trust Him in this life, you're without Him forever. And the Bible is trying to convince you that He is who He says He is. What it writes in the Bible is what really happened. This Jesus came. He did all the miracles that He did so that you would see that He's God in the flesh. And then He died on the cross saying, I was there to deliver you. My blood being shed is a ransom for you. And you can trust in Him. That's the message of the Scripture. Trust in Him. Without Him, you're lost. You're lost forever. That is the glory that you see in Christ. I can put my soul in His hand. I can trust Him forever. He's able to deliver anyone. The Spirit opens our eyes to see Christ in all His glorious supremacy and sufficiency. It helps you understand why Paul calls the Gospel the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's, it's through the Gospel that the unbeliever holds the glory of Christ, which is the... He sees it as a sovereign authority over all. His great love for mankind, His supreme power as God, His abounding grace for sinners. That's what you're seeing. He's worthy of all trust. He's worthy of all worship, all praise, all submission. Why? Because He possesses all glory. There's no one like Him. There's no circumstance. There's no bondage. There's no darkness. There's no brokenness out of which Christ can't deliver you. That's what you see. That's why you trust Him and that's why you love Him and that's why you serve Him even when you suffer for Him. There's no one else like Him. Who else has the words of life? And so Paul first shows us the glory of Christ and His power to deliver anyone and then secondly, he shows us His power to transform everyone that He saves. Christ is able to transform everyone. This is our second main point. Christ is able to transform everyone. Talking about His sufficiency. He is sufficient. So the initial work of renewing the heart that that Paul is describing here in chapter 3 in the first five verses, the setting free from bondage into liberty down in verse 17, it's just the beginning, friend. It's just the beginning. Paul says in verse 18 that Christ continues to powerfully transform the soul by the Spirit of God. Read with me verse 18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, what does he say there? Are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Do you see any exceptions here? Well, he delivered you, but 
I guess he doesn't want to deliver me. I got a problem with that statement. You should have a problem with that statement. It says, he says, we are all being transformed. We all are being transformed. See, this is the glory of Christ. He's able to deliver anyone and he transforms everyone that he saves. He doesn't leave you as he found you. No one remains as they were. This word transformed, it speaks of deep change in the core of a person. This is the Spirit's work. Look at how he does it. Look at how the Spirit does it. He causes us to behold something. What? The glory of the Lord. He shows them Christ's glorious sufficiency. The Spirit shows the believer that Christ is more than able, more than able to accomplish in us all that is needed to heal, to restore, to comfort, to satisfy your soul. See, the Spirit shows us what? It's the all-sufficiency of Christ. And how does He show us this? Like visions? No. The Word of God. That's where He shows you this. See, when you read the Word, what Paul is describing here, he says, when you read the Word, it's like seeing an image of Christ, like, like an image in a mirror. That's what you're seeing when you read the Bible. You're seeing Christ. And Paul says that the Spirit, by His power, He transforms you into that image. That image of Christ that you're beholding in the Word of God. That's what He's doing. And He does this little by glorious little. You begin to love Him. You begin to love like Him. And you find you can even love your enemies. You realize those people that you could never forgive, you can, you can now forgive. Even those who betrayed you. Even those who brutalized you, maybe it was your father, maybe it was your mother, you can even forgive them. You don't have to carry that around. You find that you can trust and obey and honor the Father just like Jesus did. And it's not a burden to you because His commands are not burdensome. It's what you want to do. And just like God's Word says, you come to see that Christ can complete you. He can establish you. He can make you whole little by little, one area after another. On and on and over a lifetime. But He can do it. And you're looking to Him because there's no one else to look to. No doctor can match what He can do. No psychiatrist can match what He can do. And that's why He's shown to be glorious. Because He does it. See, Christian, can you see how much you need to have Christ's glory put before you? Do you see how crucial this is for your growth? In Christ, your maturity, your stability in your walk with God in a wicked and difficult world, you're going to face great trials in this life. You've faced some already. There's more coming. And the devil will be right there. And you know what he's going to want you to think about Christ? He's not enough. You need to supplement Christ with something else. Go to the psychiatrist for is what you need. Look at, Turn to these drugs for what you need. Meditate. That's what you need. He wants to rob Christ of the praise He deserves by making you doubt that Christ can help you. Listen to the way Spurgeon put it. We know, we know Spurgeon puts things so well. So let me quote him. What of God it is needful and beneficial for us to know He has revealed in Christ. Truly, the revelation is by no means scant, for there is vastly more revealed in the person of Christ than we shall be likely to learn in this mortal life. And even eternity will not be too long for the discovery of all the glory of God which shines forth in the person of the Word made flesh. 
Those who would supplement Christianity had better first add to the brilliance of the sun or the fullness of the sea. As for us, we are more than satisfied with the revelation of God in the person of our Lord Jesus. See, this is why we sing, you are glorious, you are wonderful, you are beautiful. Now you know why you should be singing that. Because of what He can do in your life, what He has done in your life, what He's going to continue to do in your life as you look to Him, as you rely on Him, as you behold Him. So do you see Christ this way? Are you convinced that all that is necessary for you to know to live godly and contentedly in this world is revealed in Christ and His Word? Or are you looking somewhere else? I tell you that you're going to be dissatisfied if you're looking somewhere else. It's insufficient. Christ is sufficient. This is, this is who Paul tells us that we must proclaim, right? We proclaim Him, Colossians 1.28. The one who is able to complete every man, restore every life broken that has been ravaged by sin. Now, this one who is able to deliver anyone and transform everyone that He saves, He's also able to sustain you. Thirdly, Christ is able to sustain you. He's able because of His infinite fullness. The Apostle John is the one who best describes for us this fullness of Christ from which you gain. And he does this in his Gospel right at the outset. Turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And he says this in verse 14. And the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full, there's the fullness, full of grace and truth. So note the specific feature of the glory that that is displayed and beheld in Christ. It's fullness. He says we see His glory full of grace and truth. So to see Christ is to see divine perfections. Remember, seeing, we're not, we're not, John saw him with his physical eyes. We see him now spiritually as we read about him in the Word. That's the same thing. There's no difference. It's not that, oh, well, John got to see him and that got, that's the better. No, we have the more sure Word. We don't need an experience to see the fullness of the glory of Christ. The Spirit opens our eyes but through His Word. So we need to understand that. So to see Christ in His Word, for us, that is to see divine perfections that exist to an infinite and limitless degree. All the perfections of God are found in Christ. Power, wisdom, holiness, righteousness, goodness, love, grace, truth. All of it, all of it, John is saying, it's to a never-ending, never-fading degree. Look at how John began his Gospel. He declared the supreme glory that Christ possesses to be the supreme glory of God. He says, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And then 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so John is using language that, that, that speaks of when Jehovah God dwelt among His people. He dwelt where? In the tabernacle. Then He dwelt in the temple. And John is saying, Christ is the eternal God. He's the same God uh, from the Old Testament who dwelt in the tabernacle, dwelt in the temple. Well, He became flesh and now He's dwelling among men. 
Christ's glory is the glory of the self-existent, all-glorious, eternal God. That's John's point at the outset. When you look at Christ, you're looking at God in the flesh. And so speaking of himself and, and he's speaking of all of the disciples, he says, we saw his glory. And this word for saw is, is the word from which we get our English word theater. It's used of those who look at a parade. It's, it's used of a person, is a person who, who, look, who, who is looked on with admiration. So a related word means to wonder at, to marvel. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's exactly what Paul was saying. They're saying the same thing. John is saying we were all stunned by what we observed and saw in Jesus. We marveled at what we witnessed of his glorious fullness. This word full, it it means plentiful abundance. When they went around and picked up all the scraps from the the, uh, feeding of the multitudes, it said 12 baskets full. They were brimming. They were probably walking like this with them. That's the word used here. It's also the same word to use to describe that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. Do you think he lacked anything of the Holy Spirit? Absolutely not. So John is saying that Jesus is full of the same glory as the Father. There's no lack in him whatsoever because he's God. He's going to have the full glory of God because he is God. That's what John is trying to convey to us. There's two specific aspects of Christ's fullness. I just want to touch on these before we close. They highlight His ability to sustain you in every trial that you face in this life and through every circumstance. Jesus, John first highlights His grace. His grace is sufficient to help you. Grace, it's God's disposition to be kind, to be favorable to people. It's His disposition to help people in need, even though their need is often a result of their own foolish disregard of God and His truth. He's gracious. He still helps you. Oh, that's true of me. See, His grace is provision for our moral and our spiritual pollution. Because He's gracious, He delivers people out of their misery, out of their bondage, out of their destruction that they justly deserve for how they rejected and rebelled against Him. Hasn't He done this for you? His grace is sufficient to help you no matter how badly you may have messed up your life. And then he highlights his truth. His truth is sufficient to guide you. His grace is sufficient to help you. His truth is sufficient to guide you. God's truth is his provision for man's moral and spiritual blindness, ignorance. It's it's God's provision for an ignorance that is often willful. We suppress truth. We don't want to hear it. That's our hearts and what they tend to do. And it's the cause of so much of our misery and our pain. Are you unsure what to do? Do you not know who to turn to or where to go? Turn to the one who is infinitely full of the truth that you need in this life. See, both of these perfections, grace and truth, they're found in Christ and they're found to an infinite degree. And John here is announcing that in Christ who was with God in the beginning because he was God and then he dwelt among men and man as a man himself, he says, in him, there's a boundless supply of grace and truth for those in great personal, spiritual, and emotional need. Whatever the misery, whatever the bondage, whatever the brokenness, he's more than able to meet that need. So Christian, you need to look nowhere else 
than to Christ for all that you need to face the troubles and the trials that you're going to face in this life. In whatever ways your sin or others' sin has left you hurting and miserable and broken and incomplete, Christ can heal you. He can restore you. He can establish you. He can complete you. His power to do this is what makes Him glorious. It's why you come to Him. It's why you continue to walk with Him. He is more than able to deliver, to transform, and to sustain the one who trusts in Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have proclaimed the Son whom You sent into the world to deliver men from the miseries of their own sin and foolishness. How gracious and merciful You are, but how powerful You also are. Lives once destroyed, lives once mired and enmeshed in sin where there was no way out, You delivered them. You delivered each one of us. None of us could deliver ourselves. None of us could change our own hearts. Only You could. That's the Christ we want to proclaim, Lord. Help us to do it truthfully, clearly, proudly, wonderfully. There's no one else who has life and words of life but Christ. And we need people to see that. And we want people to see that. Help us to proclaim Him this way. But help us to trust Him this way too. There's so many ways that the devil wants to rob Christ of the glory he deserves in our lives when we turn to other things and other other methods, other ways, when Christ is all we need. And we thank you, Lord, that, that he is enough. And we praise him for his beauty, that he's wonderful, and that he's glorious. Thank you. Amen.